Section 76 of The Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Rev. M. P. Hill. Section 76. The Reformation. Protestant Position. The Reformation was the restoration of the Church to the primitive truth and power of the Gospel of the Redemption. It has been a source of manifold blessings. To call it a revolution or a rebellion is to slander it. Its Refutation 1. The Reformation was a revolt against divinely constituted authority. 2. By substituting private judgment for authoritative teaching, it rendered unity of doctrine impossible, and hence aimed a blow at the existence of the Church itself. 3. Its logical and historical outcome is rationalism. 4. It has been the fountain source of many social evils. A Dilemma When the Reformers made their appearance in Europe, the Church of Christ either still existed, or it did not. If it no longer existed, the promises of Christ had been made in vain. He had promised Peter that the gates of hell should never prevail against his church, Matthew chapter 16 verse 18. The gates of hell must have actually prevailed against it and destroyed it. He had promised the apostles, Matthew chapter 28 verse 20, Behold, I am with you, in your discharge of the office of preaching the word, all days, even to the consummation of the world, i.e. to the end of time. Christ must have ceased to be with his apostles or their successors, and the church must have become a purely human society. And not only his promises, but also his prayers, must have been ineffectual. And I will ask the Father, and he shall give you another paraclete, that he may abide with you for ever, the Spirit of Truth. John chapter 14 verses 16 to 18 If his prayer was not heard, the church was no longer inspired by the Spirit of Truth. But neither the promises nor the prayer of Christ could have failed of their object. Therefore, the Church of Christ still existed. It was still the divinely appointed custodian of revealed truth. Its claim to obedience was unquestionable. Its visible teaching authority remained intact. In all its essentials it must have remained such as Christ had constituted it. It was not, however, necessarily perfect in all respects. The Church had a human side to it, and on its human side it was open to defect. Even before our Lord's ascension, human weakness or human passion had asserted itself in two of the chosen twelve. The Church could remain true to its mission, and yet include in its fold many an unworthy member. Christ and his Holy Spirit could still abide with the Church as a body, even though many of its members were but dead branches on the living tree of the Church. Therefore, when Luther and his fellow reformers made their appearance, the Church of Christ still existed, and its rulers were still the accredited representatives of Christ. Any attempt to destroy their authority must be an attempt to destroy the work of God. And this was the general belief of Christians at that period, there had been, it is true, opponents of the authority of the teachers and rulers of the Church, 
but their very opposition stamped them as unchristian. The touchstone of orthodoxy was submission to authority. Luther himself did not begin with direct opposition to church authority. He began by preaching his peculiar doctrines on faith and good works, even before his outbreak out of Wittenberg. Footnote. Compare Janssen, History of the German People at the Close of the Middle Ages, Volume 3, pages 86 to 89, for documentary proof of the above assertion. End footnote. And in proportion as he became wedded to his own opinions and found himself a popular leader with numerous followers, then, seeing that the Holy See repudiated his doctrines, he forthwith repudiated the Holy See. But that, we repeat, was not his first position. Even after the publication of his 95 Theses in 1517, he frequently declared that he would remain subject to the Pope and the Church. Separation from the Church he had, in all probability, not dreamed of. As late as 1519, he said, in reference to the Hussites, that he had never countenanced a schism, and never in his life would. In the same year, he again wrote, apropos of the Hussites, the following words. No provocation is great enough, or can become great enough, to justify one in separating himself from the church. And the following. No manner of sin or evil of which we can form any conception can justify anyone in an attempt to sever the bond of Christian charity or destroy religious unity. Footnote. Compare Janssen, History of the German People at the Close of the Middle Ages, Volume 3, page 28. End footnote. It is only too evident, therefore, that when he afterward persisted in preaching his peculiar doctrines in defiance of the Pope and the bishops, he was guilty of a revolt against divinely constituted authority. But, in following this course of conduct, he was only treading in the footsteps of most other would-be reformers from the beginning of the history of the Church. Opposition to ecclesiastical authority was not usually the first step. The die was cast and open revolt begun only when the personal views of the reformers were formally rejected by the Church. The touchstone of submission was applied and they were found wanting. When divine authority was gone, human judgment stepped into its place. It was no longer the church that taught and governed in the name of Christ. Each self-constituted reformer, and very soon their name was Legion, sought to impose his own personal opinions on the multitude. Authority of some kind had to be assumed, and hence we find Martin Luther placing himself on a level with St. Paul. My teaching shall be called in question by no one, not even by angels. Whosoever refuses to accept my teaching shall not be saved. But no assumption of personal authority could ever avail to preserve unity of doctrine among those who had rejected the one infallible authority established by Christ. Before Luther finished his career, he saw the reform split up into numerous sects, each of them hurling anathemas at all the rest. Today, the sects are numbered by the hundred, though practically each individual is a law to himself in the matter of religion. Outside the Catholic Church, unity of faith has vanished forever. 
there is no basis for unity, as private judgment and corporate uniformity must ever be at variance. But the dissolution of unity was not the only evil effect of the abandonment of divinely constituted authority. Protestant individualism is chiefly responsible for the origin and growth of modern rationalism. The exaggerated claims of reason, and the ignoring of all authority in the matter of religion, were the natural outcome of Protestantism. When a Catholic becomes a rationalist, it is because he has neglected and forfeited his gift of faith. When a Protestant becomes a rationalist, it is because he is more logical than his fellows. When Protestantism discarded the authority of the Church, it still held to the authority of Scripture, but even the authority of Scripture has been gradually disappearing under the solvent of private judgment. If private judgment can get rid of the authority of the Church, there is no reason why it cannot get rid of the authority of Scripture. What possible pledge can it have that Scripture is the Word of God? The Church is gone, and yet the Church was the only legitimate custodian of Scripture. Hence, Scripture has fallen from the high place it once occupied as the inspired record of God's dealings with men. It ranks no higher than any other narrative of past events. Criticism can play fast and loose with its statements. Entire books can be discarded. Its most important records of God's revelation can be reasoned out of existence. Finally, all belief in revelation must disappear from the mind and leave at best a residue of deism. The rationalistic deism that infected so many English minds in the 17th and 18th centuries and which afterward, through the English philosophers, so profoundly influenced French thought among the contemporaries of Voltaire, and thus helped to precipitate the great atheistic revolution which closed the 18th century, was the direct offspring of English Protestantism. The rationalism that infects Germany today, and extends its influence to America, has sprung from the bosom of German evangelicalism. It would be safe to assert that every second or third professor of theology in northern Germany handles scripture, tradition and the fathers in a rationalistic spirit. Many of them retain little or nothing of positive belief that entitles them to be strictly called Christians of any type. As to the manifold blessings attributed to the Reformation, it would be difficult to imagine any single blessing due to the Reformation as such, Whatever blessings it has conferred are due to the remnant of Christianity which it has handed on from the old Catholic days. Its own distinctive work and influence have been fraught with evils rather than with blessings. Religious discord is not a blessing, neither is rationalism. During the Middle Ages, there was at least one bond of union between the nations of Europe, a common faith Today, national animosity is everywhere intensified by religious hatred. To the reformers we owe the spirit of revolution, which has so often convulsed modern society. Revolt against the highest authority on earth at once set the pace to malcontents of every description and in every clime. It is to the lax principles of the Reformation that we owe the secularization of education, which is bearing such lamentable fruit in our own country today. It is to the Reformation that we owe the violation of the sanctity of marriage by divorce and by laws permitting and legalising divorce. In contrast to this, 
The Catholic Church is the one power on earth which consistently and uncompromisingly takes its stand on religious education and the inviolability of marriage. It is to the weak and ineffective authority exercised by the churches of the Reform over their individual members and to the small sense of obligation in the members themselves that we must attribute the wholesale abandonment of public worship in the United States which has become one of our national scandals. There are probably 55 million persons in the United States who have no connection with any religious denomination and are never seen within the walls of a church. These are some of the evils that have followed in the wake of Luther's Reformation. End of section 76